Hello and welcome to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here and we're so glad that you're here. We use our mojo to really become greater leaders. Now, let's get started by listening to something good. Want to make 2017 your best year ever? Then let me be your teacher, your mentor. I've prepared special courses and webinars for you that will help you succeed and to give you access directly to me. Go to mojouniversity.com and sign up today. You have nothing to lose. Try me for 30 days and if you aren't satisfied, I guarantee you a full refund, no questions asked. Don't go it alone. Let me be your guide at mojouniversity.com. Be successful today. Hello and welcome everyone to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here, and I'm thrilled to introduce my special guest, Lisa Earl McLeod. Now, Lisa is a global expert in noble purpose. Now, she's a keynote speaker and consultant uh, who helps leaders increase competitive differentiation and emotional engagement. She's the author of the bestsellers Selling with Noble Purpose and Leading with Noble Purpose. Uh, she's worked with large companies like Google, Flight Center, uh, Rocher, and many others. And today we're going to talk about leading with noble purpose, how to create a tribe of true believers. I know it's going to be a lot of fun. Lisa, welcome to the Manager Mojo Show. Well, thanks. I'm delighted to be here with you today. I'm delighted to have you as well. And uh, before we get started talking about your great book, why don't you share with our listeners what fun thing that you've been up to lately outside of work? So I, I'm going to share two fun things. Cool. So one fun thing is this weekend, now if you see my picture online, you will probably not believe this, but I swear it is true. This weekend, I was water skiing. Cool. Everybody in my family is a better water skier than me, and so my my dad was a better water skier than me. My brother was a better water skier than me. So I literally had to move to a lake house, buy a house on the lake, and I've secretly been practicing. And now I have gotten to where I am almost as good as the other people in my family on water. That is awesome. Uh, <laughs> you have my utmost respect uh, for water skiing. Uh, I never really did that much, and uh, I, one of my uh, <laughs> my friends, I'm going to call him loosely a friend, uh, he was a golfing buddy, wanted me to go skiing on his lake back many years ago, and I'd never been up on skis in my life, and so he proceeded to try to drag me across the lake uh, and, and kept me from getting up, so I admire it greatly. <laughs> well, that's one fun thing I've been doing. Another What's the fun second thing, thing? That I did. Okay, this is so outrageous. Have you ever seen a flash mob? You know, one of those where oh, one or sure. two people starts dancing and then the rest of them? Well, I was part of one. 
Cool. So much fun. Did you sing or dance or what did you guys do? I danced. I danced. And uh, we danced that Justin Timberlake song, I've Got a Feeling, and it was in front of the Eiffel Tower in Paris. And it was 100 women. It was okay. crazy. You win. Uh, that's the that's the most fun thing that we've ever had anybody share on the Manager Mojo show. Uh, flash mob in front of the Eiffel Tower in Paris uh, to Justin Timberlake song. That's pretty awesome. It was so awesome. And the thing is, as I'm sharing this, if people are listening, they're thinking I'm like this really exciting person that does cool stuff. Those are like the two coolest things I've done in the entire last decade. <laughs> <laughs> and I just happened to have done them both recently. Well, well, Lisa, at least you've done them, right? And uh, th- that's the whole point. So many of us get so tied up in our business world uh, that we forget that life has to be lived. And, and so we always encourage people to really put some fun in their life. And thank you so much for sharing those two things with us today. Well, stuff like that does give you a lot of energy for your work. You know, I work really hard, I travel, and I'm always thinking about organizations. And lately I've really observed in myself and a lot of the leaders that I coach, getting yourself outside of work and igniting those other parts of your brain, they just, it's not just relieving stress. They really are getting your brain to think more creatively and differently with movement and outdoors and music and things like that. And that's an energy you can bring into your organization. Oh, no doubt about it. And uh, from my perspective, uh, Lisa, I don't think you can be creative unless you have some fun and some uh, things outside of your normal routine that stimulate your thinking. And uh, so that's what I, uh, I encourage people to do here uh, that are regular listeners. And they're aware of that. And it's awesome to hear you say it uh, because being uh, an expert yourself, working with companies and leaders all over the world, it's really cool to hear somebody else uh, say it other than just me. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> Good. Uh, I want to talk about leading with noble purpose. Uh, This is a really uh, delightful book in a lot of ways to me in that it it covers, uh, I think sometimes people really don't understand the real purpose uh, that they have in their work or in their business, and it keeps them uh, held back. And I think you did a beautiful job in this book of helping us understand Uh, that our job is really not just to make money. And you made made a statement in the book, and you talk about it in a a chapter. You said, uh, if uh, money's the only thing, then you're doing the wrong thing. So tell us a little bit about your perspective on how you can really get lost in in the wrong goals. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because you think about a lot of people in their career start out because they need to make a living, you know, and then you might have bigger aspirations, you want your family, but a lot of people are very driven by money. And the same thing plays out organizationally, especially in publicly held companies. And so it's really easy to assume that the point is to make money. But what we know for a fact, and the data proves this, if your only aim is money as an organization, you will wind up a very mediocre organization. Because you see, organizations who have a purpose bigger than money, and by that I mean 
whose purpose is to improve the lives of their customers. Mm. It doesn't have to be feeding the hungry. It doesn't have to be curing disease. It can be simply putting a unique device in people's hands or giving them a different experience online or a different way to make decisions or a different way to do their books, whatever it is. Organizations whose purpose is to improve the lives of their customers actually outperform the competition. And some market studies show that they outperform the competition by almost three times as much. And the reason is really simple. Imagine an organization where all the people sit, sit around and talk about how can we make more money. They can put all kinds of controls in place. They can put all kinds of incentives in place, and they'll probably make money. And Some of your listeners may have worked for those types of organizations. Mm-hmm. But imagine they're competing against a company that sits around and says, how can we make things better for our customers? How can we improve their lives? How can we do things faster, better, better, bolder, whatever it is? That company whose internal conversation is about customers is going to out-innovate and outperform the company whose internal conversation is simply about their own numbers. And we've seen it happen time and time again. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. I, as a matter of fact, I, I, it, it sounds, uh, when, when you actually say it, uh, I think people think that it's actually too simple of an explanation. Uh, that they say, well, you know, if you just focus on your customers, if your purpose is your customers, you're gonna do better. But I don't think they understand the psychological connection between focusing on your customer instead of the end result, which is they exchange money for the services that you've provided. Mm-hmm. And it's, to me, it's, it's like any other uh, psychological connection that we have. Uh, it's more meaningful when there's, there's real connection, there's real emotion behind it. Is that a fair thing to say, or do you find that, that maybe people uh, don't overcomplicate it? I'm interested in your perspective from uh, talking to a lot of different well, companies in this. There, there is a, a huge emotional element in this. And one of the things I like to say is it's simple, but it's not easy. So I'll I give you an that. example. I love that. We, yeah. I mean, we work with one um, client, and this is, this is in the book, so it's all public. One of our clients is Flight Center. They are the world's largest travel agency, global company. They have 80,000 people. They have affiliates all over the world. They go by a lot of different brands in different countries. And we worked with them. We created what we called the noble purpose. And it was, we care about delivering amazing travel experiences. And that's what unites them around the globe. Now that's pretty simple, but it's not that easy because (laughs) we had to take care. And what does it mean to show the customers you care? We can't just tell them to be nice. You've got to have a really good computer system that gives you the right data about customers. You've got to train all your people. You've got to allocate enough time to be on the phone with customers. Your people have to be product experts. I mean, that one little word, we care. Like, it's not easy to get 80,000 people the tools and support they need to care. It's not easy to get eight people to think that they care. (laughs) Right. All right. So, I mean, the thing is, the mental piece is definitely a huge part of it then you have to create the systems and support. So then they had to say, how do we deliver? Then they had to say, what does amazing look like? And so within, packed within that simple sentence, it cascades down into a whole series of decisions. But they start 
with the mental decision to say, we're about more than just making money. We have a noble purpose. And and one of the things that's really interesting that people often say in business, it just cracks me up, is they say, let's keep this professional. Let's not get emotional. <laughs> and that's the stupidest thing you could ever say. That is the stupidest, stupidest thing a leader could I, I love ever it. say. I love it when a competitor says that. <laughs> I just yes. love that because everything is emotional. Everything is emotional. And, and I, I work with, you know, CEOs and other senior leaders, and I have yet to meet one of them. Because, you know, if there's one thing I wish, I wish my people weren't so excited. I wish they didn't care so much. I mean, the reality <laughs> is in successful business, there is heightened emotional engagement. You know, you show me a company where the people don't care – and I'll show you a company that not much later is going to have very poor financial results. And Agreed. so the thing is, we know there's, there's two, two things that we know are critically important in a business. One is emotional engagement. You want passionate employees who care, who care about the impact you're having on customers, and you want competitive differentiation. You want absolute clarity about how you're different. And those two things, emotional engagement and competitive differentiation, actually spring from the same source. And that source is your noble purpose. Because you do not create competitive differentiation by saying, we're going to be the best in the market and make the most money doing it. That's about you. It's not about your customer. And that's not something your people are going to be excited about for the long term. You create that differentiation and engagement by saying, we care about delivering amazing travel experience and we're going to do it better than anybody else. You created of our, you know, one of our other clients said, we make transportation safer, faster, and more reliable. That becomes the North star of the company and it's short and succinct and focused on the customer. So it's simple, but it is not easy. No, it, it's definitely not easy. And, and I, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, I think people are so busy uh, doing stuff, doing tasks, that they forget that, uh, hey, if you don't start with the customer, how in the world are you ever going to uh, really come up with any kind of purpose, much less a noble purpose? Right. Well, and the thing that happens is a lot of companies say that they're customer-centric. But being customer-centric, it's a good start. But that can also result in employees who feel like they're indentured servants. And, yep, it does. you know, like the idea the customer is always right. Well, guess what? The customer is actually not always right. There's a very famous Henry Ford saying where he said, if I'd have given them what they'd have wanted, they'd have asked for faster horses. You know, you don't create innovation by giving people just what they want. There's a great um, statement that the Ritz-Carlton has which is ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And it's, it's just part of their ethos. And I love that statement because it elevates both the employees and the clients. Absolutely. And I so, mean, if you're in business long enough, uh, you know the value of having the right customers uh, in your business. And that there are, if your people understand what the right customer looks like and how it fits within your purpose, then uh, it's easier to say, you know what, we need to pass on this one because they just aren't, aren't the customer that's going to be happy working in our business. That's right. Well, one of the things that we say to our clients and one of the things we, we work with on the culture and with specificity, the actions that people are taking, 
is it's not just about pleasing the customer. It is about deciding the impact that you want to have. And that's that statement, that noble purpose statement is the jumping off point. And if you think about it, it's not just we want to please our customers. It's we want to have this impact on our customers. Like we want to make their transportation safer, faster, and more reliable. You know, that's a really clear one, and that comes from a company that's in the makes some mechanical equipment and transportation. And they're not just we want to keep our customers happy, but they have a clear impact. And that guides everything they do. It guides their innovation. It guides the questions their salespeople ask when they go out with customers. It guides the senior leadership decisions about where to invest and where not to invest. But if you don't have that kind of clarity, you just become reactive. Well, no question. Uh, and being reactive doesn't benefit anybody. So uh, one thing that I do want to, I, I don't want to go too far without us really uh, getting your opinion. What is the difference between uh, being a purpose-driven company and one that has a noble purpose? Uh, tell us the context of that. W- what was it that you were really wanting to accomplish within the book? Well, the reason I coined the phrase noble purpose is, and it is trademarked, um, the reason I did that was I wanted to make it clear that it is in the service of others, the customer. Because a lot of companies will say they're purpose-driven, but their purpose is to be the best in the world. Well, that's still a, it's a great you know idea to be the best in the world, but it's not going to be the North Star that a noble purpose is. Because the word noble, it took me a long time to find the right word, but the word noble is in the service of others, and it is also brave. It's not submissive. I like that. Yeah, and and so it, it is bold, it is brave, and it is in the service of others. And so when you say you have a noble purpose, you can't follow that with the words, and it is, to improve earnings for our shareholders. You know, people are going to call you on this. (laughs) I mean, every customer uh, wants to hear that, don't they? Uh, Hey, we want you, Mr. Customer, but our job is to make sure that our shareholders make enough money. Right. Uh, Gee, come on. Never happens. When you call it noble purpose, so we'll use an example that's been in the media a couple times recently. Like you look at Wells Fargo. And the previous CEO of Wells Fargo had been in the media quite often before in the business presses, quite often before the big debacle. And one of the things he was saying was cross-selling is an integral part of our strategy. And now if you looked down in his comments, he would say cross-selling, you know, selling a client more than one you know, stream of revenue should be the result of us understanding our clients, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when he spoke about it, the initial push was always cross-selling. Well, if a company has a noble purpose, someone's going to scratch their head and go, well, then why is cross-selling the strategy? I would think understanding the client's best interest would be the strategy. Cross-selling might be a result, but it really forces you to get clear on the impact you want to have on clients. I totally agree with you. And I know in the book that uh, you go into it in great detail. And the thing that I love about... You make it sound so sexy. Uh, well, it is to me because I think, I, I mean, personally, I, I think businesses 
exist not not just for making money. I mean, that's a part of it. That's an end result, an outcome. And I certainly enjoy uh, helping companies and people become profitable. Uh, but the reality is, if I can help them understand, just like you're talking about today, if you can really work with your customers so that they think that you're the, the, the very best experience they've ever had, uh, boy, competition's got a tough time trying to compete with you. Right. Well, you, re- you certainly reduce the cost of having to resell them. Absolutely. Because uh, you want... You know, you mentioned that the subtitle of the book is How to Create a Tribe of True Believers. Mm-hmm. Customers know when they encounter true believers. And true believers are people who are all in for the client. And customers can feel it. And it doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean you do everything perfectly. But customers it can feel it and it generates a whole series of very tangible things that your company starts to do. Absolutely. Now, you've given us some some great examples already. You, you talked uh, about we care about delivering amazing travel experiences. Uh, and I, I know Roche uh, said, doing now what patients need next. Another great statement. But to be effective, uh, give us a couple of tips on what a noble purpose actually has got to be. So the most exciting part of embracing a noble purpose philosophy is creating your, your noble purpose. And I'm going to tell you how to do that. But before I tell you that, I can tell you that that's just the start. You mentioned I went into detail in the book. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I did is because creating a statement and announcing it to everyone is kind of the fun, sexy part looking at your CRM and how you're capturing customer information, looking at how you run your meetings, and are they metrics-based, are they customer impact-based? Those aren't quite as sexy, but they're absolutely required if you want to create this competitive advantage. So I'll put that out there. But in terms of creating your own noble purpose, and a lot of times we call it a noble sales purpose, and the reason we call it noble sales purpose is because it has to be based on the revenue generating part of your business. Because a lot of people think, oh, well, we're a noble purpose company because we give to charity. Well, that's all fine and well, but your noble purpose needs to be embedded in your commercial model. And so the way that you find your noble purpose is you answer three questions. One, how do we make a difference? How do we affect our customers' businesses, our customers' lives? And number two, how do we do it differently than our competition? And number three, on your best day, what do you love about your job? And we call these the three discovery questions, and they're framed in that way for some very specific reasons. Because in a lot of companies, you'll hear people talk about their value proposition. And when they talk about that, they often use very business terms, very generic terms that don't actually say anything. And so that's why we phrase the question differently. How do you make a difference with your customers? Because we really want to get to the root of it. And so when we work with organizations, I work with the senior leadership team. I'll do customer interviews, employee interviews, and then we'll get the team together and answer those three questions in a narrative. And then out of that lifts 
your noble purpose statement. And so another example is we work with a learning and development company, Get Abstract, and their noble purpose is we turn employees into leaders. So the statement needs to be short and succinct and based on what you sell. Then the answers to those questions, that becomes the narrative of the business and the thing that you start talking about on a daily basis. Because you see, the default language of business is always numbers. And so if you, unless you're proactive about creating this customer impact narrative, it won't happen. Everyone will just default to the numbers. Uh, all I can say to that is amen. It absolutely will. Uh, I know people are going to want to know more about how to connect with you and to learn more about your work. So why don't you share with them how they can best connect with you? Yeah, we, we've got a website. It's mcleodandmore.com, and my name's spelled M-C-L-E-O-D. But you know what the easiest way is? Just type Noble Purpose into Google, and I will pop up. A little awesome. bit down, you'll see Lisa McLeod, and you can find me that way. Awesome. And for those of you that are exercising, we'll make it even easier. We'll just put a link directly uh, to Lisa's website for you. Uh, so don't mess up your workout. Keep going. Enjoy yourself. And you'll have it right in the, uh, the notes of, of the uh, episode to make it easy. Uh, one of the things, uh, Lisa, that, that I really loved, and I, I, don't, I don't see this often enough because I think uh, we are all a product of our life experiences. That's where we get our, uh, our knowledge, our expertise, if you will, to share with others, which uh, I think you've done a phenomenal job with. But I was really touched in your book by your dedication to your father. Uh, and it was obvious to me that, that you really picked up a lot of things uh, from his example. Am, am I correct in making that assumption? Oh, absolutely. My dad was a banker, and then later on he was um, a banking regulator. He worked for the FDIC, which might not sound that sexy to people, but he was always so excited about it. And one of the things that I really got from him was that your work matters. I think I was like 26 or 27 years old, you know, a couple of years into my career, before I realized that some people actually hated their jobs. And I couldn't even believe it. <laughs> and that's not to say that I hadn't had crummy jobs. I mean, I'd worked at, you know, I'd worked at a, well, I worked at a donut shop. I actually kind of like that. But, you know, I'd worked at McDonald's. And I'd worked at some, you know, less than glamorous jobs, you know, coming along. But it was, I'd always believed that your work mattered. The way you did your work and the kind of work you did mattered. And it was stunning to me that people not only hated jobs, but they seemed okay with that. That just blew my mind. And, and one of the things that has really been one of the causes of my life is I look at these employee engagement numbers. They're disgusting, like 55%, aren't they? They're, they're amazing. It's horrible. And the thing is, I can't believe people are okay with that. You know, there's not a parent alive who holds that new baby in arms and looks down at that child and says, one day I hope you join the ranks of people who hate their job. Well, <laughs> I agree with you, Lisa. And, and the thing that gets me is that people today will say, well, that's just the modern uh, problem and it's the millennials coming into the workplace. And I got to tell you, long before we called anybody a millennial, uh, it was the same numbers. People still hated their yeah. job. And we haven't done a darn thing about it, in my opinion, since World War II. 
So it's been pretty nasty when you look at that. I I have an equal experience, Lisa, in in, uh, your thought. Uh, Where it came to roost for me was in my very first uh, real management job where I got promoted. I was working for, at that time, the world's largest corporation. And I thought everybody on my team was just as motivated and loved their work as much as I did, and they wanted to work 70 or 80 hours a week. Oh, my God, did they give me a reality check? (laughs) Uh, I quickly learned that some of them just wanted the check, and they wanted me to go away. (laughs) It was really tough on me because I didn't didn't know how to deal with that kind of difference. And I I don't believe I'm alone, and that's why uh, I guess I picked up on it in the book about you and your dad because I think that it's true – throughout uh, our, our lives, that it's those people that really are passionate uh, about what they do. They've discovered something that others haven't. And that's where we can learn, is where we can really find that emotional connection that, uh, th- that we call it engagement today. But if you can't grab somebody's heart, I promise you, you're not going to get their work ethic. No, you won't. And that as you said, it's been going on. You know, Plato talked about meaning. Viktor Frankl wrote Man's Search for Meaning. The difference in the workforce today, though, is everyone wants purpose and meaning. The millennials are the first generation who will quit if they don't have it. That's true. And, they and will. That, they will. They've got a better safety net. They watch their parents get fired from corporate jobs. They don't have the loyalty. And they're right. They will not settle for meaningless jobs, or if they are going to do a meaningless job, it's going to be a vehicle to just pay the bills so they can do something else. And the thing is, it's so interesting when people talk about, well, it's always been like this. We shouldn't, you know, what's with these millennials? You know, if we left things the way they were, I would be sewing on buttons in a hat factory in 95 Ab- degree heat because that's what I'd be allowed to do. Absolutely. You know, the idea that work should become more and more meaningful for people is human progress. You know, you look at all of the greatest innovations from, you know, I don't know, use the Wright brothers, use anybody. They were all driven by people who care. So the more we can galvanize more people who care, and that 55% of people who don't like their jobs, that's not all on them. Some of it's on the way these organizations have been run. And what I've seen with our clients is once you start creating that noble purpose and rallying around it, the whole game changes. It does. Because you engage. You engage those middle-of-the-road people, and the people who don't care start to leave. And they get replaced by people who want to be part of what you've got. Amen. I think that's exactly what has to happen. And, you know, for me, I I am an unabashed uh, capitalist. But the reason is because I understand what true capitalism is. True capitalism is always about improving not only the lives of uh, the customers, but also your team. Uh, that You can't do it unless you have the emotional commitment to really improve people's lives. That's why we have great men and women all over the world now leading organizations because they now want to drive improvement in the human life. And for me, that's so critical. And to me, that is noble because it is bold and it is purpose-driven. 
And I, I think this book it should be required reading myself for, for all of us that believe that we want to go into leadership management and to, to really uh, our business schools. I mean, I, I would encourage you uh, with our business schools, uh, tell them this ought to be required reading because we need to have more and more leaders that are committed by a real purpose than by just financial goals. We can teach the other stuff. We can teach you how to improve your profits, but boy, it's a different thing to capture somebody's mind and imagination. Mm -hmm. And the best leaders have always done it. And fortunately now, we know how to do it. That's so even a beautiful if you weren't thing. trained, we know how. Well. Uh, Lisa, it's just been awesome uh, to talk with you today. Uh, before we close, or as we close, I would just like for you to suggest one or two action items that our listeners should take uh, from our conversations today. What would those one okay. or two action items be? So one simple, easy action. Doesn't matter what your level in the organization, whether you're at the lowest level or the CEO. Think about a time when you and your organization made a difference in the life of a customer. And I don't mean when you gave away something for free. I don't mean an act of charity. I mean when the product or service that you sold improved a customer's life or business in a meaningful way. I want you to think about that time and at your next meeting, tell that story. When everybody trots out the spreadsheet, and spreadsheets matter, rigorous discipline amount of money matters, what also matters is you want to show where those numbers came from. So when you step, trot out the spreadsheet and say, this is how much we sold this month, say, you know what? I want to tell you about one of them. So I want you to tell that story because what's going to happen when you tell that story is you are actually going to ignite a brain chemical. You're going to ignite people's frontal lobes. Serotonin is going to start flowing through their body, and you're going to make your team literally think bigger than they were only seconds for. So that's number one, find the story and tell it. Then the second thing is think about the way you give praise. Again, peer-to-peer, -peer, CEO, to direct reports, whatever it is. Whenever you give praise to someone, connect the dots to the impact it had on the customer. So don't just say, great job. Don't just say, wow, you sold $100 million say, here's the impact that's going to have on these customers. If you do those two things, only those two things, you will start to change the narrative of your business. Love it. What two great action items uh, for us all to take, Lisa. Thanks for sharing those. Uh, my guest today has been best-selling author Lisa Earl McLeod. She's author of Leading with Noble Purpose, and we've been talking about that today. I encourage you, get your copy of the book. Just click the link. I'm sure you'll be able to go directly to it. We'll make it easy for you to, to do that as well. Uh, Lisa, thank you so very much for your time, your wisdom, and your expertise today. Uh, on behalf of all our listeners, I wish you continued success in everything that you you do, not only uh, in helping us understand our noble purpose, but in executing that. Thank you so much, and best wishes to you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you today. Steve here, and one last reminder, I want to thank you for listening to the show, and I want to encourage you, go over to mojouniversity.com. Before you forget it, make sure you sign up 
for our training site. And let me be your teacher this year. I promise you, you're going to be successful. You're going to love it. Go to mojouniversity.com and sign up today.